my proposition is to postulate on the possibility that it was the prophetic spirits of the Christian God who prompted Socrates to set out on a quest for virtue, thereby leaving behind philosophy as his legacy, which created the bedrock for Western education, civilization, and the foundation of a Christian worldview that the, the Apostle Paul expanded on at a later time. There is weaknesses in this argument left to be defended, just like any argument ever proposed, and this episode will cover the weaknesses and then the strengths on an ongoing implication of my thesis. The fact that Socrates could only describe his nameless daemon implies some kind of supernatural deity to it. However, just because the voice was supernatural does not necessarily presume it was the Spirit of God from the Bible. There's only two possible scenarios. Either it was indeed the Holy Spirit of God who came onto Socrates by a prompting, leading him to live and die the way he did, again comparable in some humanly ways to that of Jesus, or that it is not. Uh, Suppose, in the event that it was the Spirit of God who visited upon Socrates, consider what options Socrates could possibly have to describe a God that he hasn't heard about, or had no knowledge of, or had no attempt to call on, not having been preached to. And at that time, from the silent period of Scripture, exclusively God of the Hebrews at that, he had no chance, there was no way. It would have been as it were asking a man to describe Jesus after meeting him without knowing who Jesus was in the first place. You may think of the woman at the well in John chapter 4. She spoke to Jesus in person, but had no idea who he was, that he was the Messiah. And that's what I mean for the Holy Spirit for Socrates here, and what he called quote-unquote daemon. But for the woman in John chapter 4, at the very least, She had heard about the Messiah, Son of God, before meeting Jesus face to face. She said, I know the Messiah is coming. That's what she said. But Socrates, in his case, he wouldn't know anything about that. He wouldn't know about Jesus, the Son of God. He wouldn't know about the Holy Spirit or what the prophetic Spirit of God would be like during the silent period of Scripture. By all accounts, he wasn't even aware that he lived during the time of the silent period of Scripture because no one had preached there yet. You have to remember, the Holy Spirit of God is an immutable person, moves like the wind, as Jesus said. But the language of a person is framed by his cultural and even religious background of his time and location in the world. So daemon was the word that Socrates used. Or the other scenario is merely that the daemon is not at all the Holy Spirit, but some foreign spirit, which by any Christian interpretation can only be rendered as anti-God or demonic or evil. And the only option left by that deduction would be to conclude Socrates as a type of antichrist by a foreign or anti-God spirit. But that would be wholly incompatible with his evident pursuit for wisdom and virtue to the point of death. That was his goal. Here was a man, Socrates, asking for and seeking virtue and wisdom, but claiming to have no answer and then died a death like that of Jesus in doing so. 
uh, for that reference, turned to uh, Oracle of Delphi, claiming Socrates to be the wisest because he knew that he knows nothing. A, a footnote on this particular line of defense, uh, Matthew chapter 12 might help. Jesus said, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, even the satanic ones. Uh, by my count, Socrates pursued had far more affinity with biblical Christian values than the alternative. Even though he failed at it without the gospel in seeking for uh, virtue and wisdom. If supposed the daemon which Socrates spoke of was anything foreign of God or against God, how then can we explain any of his legacy a modest comparison with Jesus in his death and his contribution to scientific advancement and a philosophical quest for wisdom and virtue, which is at least a good thing on humanist terms, if not on religious terms. And finally, his legacy as an intellectual bedrock for which Christianity thrives through the Apostle Paul, which without a doubt was a work of God, no? Uh, So the only way, by my proposition, is uh, to compare the aftermath of said deities uh, or the daemon's influence And that is where the outcome of the life and death of Socrates is a noteworthy comparison of with Jesus. Now, this thesis stands or fall on one thing and one thing only. Could the daemon that Socrates described indeed be a prompting of the Holy Spirit of God? How can anyone say Socrates was inspired by this Holy Spirit of God? The Jews would never have it. They would be red with jealousy for the prophetic spirit of Yahweh to become silent and then inspired a Roman on the other side of the world. That's unthinkable. And for the Greeks, probably they would have been equally baffled for any heavenly form of deity to enter into the substance of mankind. That's unthinkable to the philosophers. The other uproar is probably more apparent to the evangelicals or rabbinic traditions, and it would be this. How could any pagan have any hope of having heard from the prophetic voice of the Holy Spirit of God at all? How could anyone claim merely on the grounds of mission of God that the Spirit of God of the Hebrews went and spoke to this one man during the silent period of Scripture, among the Greeks no less, and guided him on a quest for truth about wisdom and virtue, and died a death the way that he did, pursuing it no less? Holy Spirit for pagan, that would be almost preposterous, insulting even. Mind you, it was almost another 500 years later that the filioque controversy got settled, decidedly that only the professing believer in the name of Jesus can receive the Holy Spirit, whom he asks from the Father to be sent. As in, if Jesus didn't arrive yet to send the Spirit of God first, how could Socrates have had any hope of hearing his prompting 400 years before Jesus, or during the silent period of Scripture? Before he had a chance to profess his faith in the name of Jesus, he never had a chance. Uh, To defend all of this, I would begin at Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10 was a classic case where the Holy Spirit of God went ahead to a family of Gentiles after Peter received a vision in a trance, and then Peter entered into the home of the Gentiles and interpreted the work of the Spirit on them in order for them to receive the gospel and baptize them in the name of Jesus. So my counter-counter-argument would be that what Peter did for the family who received the prompting of the Holy Spirit in the Acts chapter 10 
Paul also had done for all the Greeks who came after Socrates, within a much longer stretch of time, hundreds of years, all through the silent years of Scripture, and for a much, much greater populace of the Roman world of that era. All that after the death and the resurrection of Jesus, who also called upon Paul to be his apostle by the Spirit of Christ. So as to adapt the singular events of Acts chapter 10 into a much larger frame of historical events over the span of a few hundred years by observing the work of the Holy Spirit there way back during the beginning of the silent period. As in, what happened in Acts chapter 10 in the Bible for Peter and a Gentile family, the same type of work of the Holy Spirit happened for Paul and the whole Roman time era from the time of Socrates and on. That's what I'm trying to say. And you could argue, in turn, that Acts chapter 10 only came after John 14, Jesus' promise of the Holy Spirit and the sending of his disciples. And you may raise the question, how could the Holy Spirit go to the Greeks, to one man prior, unless Jesus first made the promise he would in John 14, which took place hundreds of years later from the time of Socrates? Uh, To which, uh, in my defense, I would say the prophetic spirits in the Old Testament had graced many names, sometimes even animals. And that would circle back to my dogmatic position of the spirit's movement and prompting between times and persons prior to the silent years. Acts chapter 10 is not necessarily the perfect fit, but in my view, it lends a perspective on the work of the Holy Spirit that can be retained in both cases. And there's support from both directions, uh, from the New Testament and the Old Testament. Had the Spirit of God been indeed at work among a people of an unknown tongue? In Isaiah 65.1, God spoke through his prophet, saying, I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. To a nation that did not call on my name. I said, God is saying, I said, here am I, here am I. That's Isaiah 65. So by the prophecy of Isaiah, it requires no stretch of imagination or exegesis to qualify or anticipate God's revelation to a people apart from the Jews prior to the time of Jesus, the Messiah, Son of God, for the sending of the spirits mentioned in John 14 for our candidate Socrates. Uh, From the New Testament, there is none more fitting than Acts chapter 17 where the Apostle Paul preached the name of Jesus against the backdrop of an altar raised for an unknown God among the Greeks. The Greeks raised an altar to worship a nameless, unknown God, and Paul took that opportunity to introduce the God of heaven and earth in the name of Jesus and by the Holy Spirit. And I'm correlating this unknown God as the daemon of Socrates from the viewpoint of the Greeks, without diminishing the message of Paul's gospel in that event in Acts chapter 17. There is no god or deity or daemon among the Greek pantheon as mysterious, pragmatic, remarkable, and influential as the daemon of Socrates. It was through the motivation of that voice that lent the Greeks such an afterthought of philosophical and religious tradition. It all began with Socrates and the voice of what he described as daemon, 
Then, much later, after several centuries, it would be the Apostle Paul who picked up on this thread and finally preached to it with the gospel of Jesus and shed light and clarity on what is true wisdom and virtue in Christ. But they didn't know that yet. All this finally to settle by faith this philosophical and religious conquest which the Greeks had set themselves upon for hundreds of years after Socrates' own death, 600 years later from that time. Uh, Roman culture became the bedrock. That's history. Roman culture became the bedrock that spawned the religion we now know as Christianity. And I do believe this is no accident that God had planned it that way. And I'm just unraveling the inkling for it. The world that the Apostle Paul preached in was a world that was completely saturated by a platonic worldview left behind by Socrates. And philosophy of the classical era became the backdrop on which Paul preached in all his letters, all of them. And without the Pauline letters, the canonical frame of the New Testament would not be the same. Without Pauline letters, the institutional momentum of Christianity would not be the same. Organizational structure of the church would not be the same. Clarity of doctrine would not be the same without Pauline letters from the New Testament. And all of this came about via Apostle Paul's interaction with Roman culture at the height of its advancement. And I'm tracing that advancement backward, as I said, through the traditions of philosophy and education, Aristotle and Plato, Socrates, down to this daemon at the moment of his death during his apology. Arguably, every subject and intellectual sentiment found in the New Testament that was not part of the Jewish diaspora was touched by Roman philosophy. Had God indeed had a hand in raising the man who died by drinking the hemlock, everything would appear to line up. Finally, it was through Paul's writings that showcased a faith, a faith that is higher than wisdom. Subjects such as worldview, inheritance, sonship, wisdom, knowledge, philosophy, government, daily social life, all of which were subjects asking for, needing the supernatural grace of God to be built on top of after the natural, not supernatural, after the natural wisdom of philosophy had already had its say during the classical run of the Roman era. And after philosophy had had its say on the matter, faith was demonstrated by Jesus and preached by Paul at a far greater fulfillment by the grace of God. What I'm proposing could be that it was the Spirit of God who prompted Socrates with question to which the same spirits were revealed by Christ at a later time through Paul and the church for the same uh, subject in response. And this would satisfy the Ptolemyan notion of nature and grace, that the grace of God completes the nature he created, or that God created and prepares nature to receive his grace. So to here, by my interpretation, there is nature and grace here in the frame of the intellectual philosophical question and response and answers from the gospel, whereby the humanly natural endeavor of philosophy, which produced education and civilization, was completed by faith as revealed and taught by the grace of God. This is how I would go about defending the weaknesses of this entire thesis. But enough about defending. 
Now turning to the strength of this thesis and some of its benefits and implications, uh, there is indeed quite a few. For one thing, we now have an open interpretation and explanation for the silent years of Scripture. 400 years of silence in Scripture turns out to be no silence at all, like the way I introduced it from the start. Only the place and the person of the voice had shifted, geographically, spatially, as in the work of God was ongoing. There was no silence. Uh, One of the greatest points in my view of this thesis is the timing of it, the life and death of Socrates quite closely coincide with the silent period of the Old Testament scriptures closing. Uh, the end book of Malachi virtually and naturally passed into the young life of Socrates, just around the bottom of the 4th century. That's a similar gap between all the other minor prophets, and that's close enough by approximation for a prophetic continuation. Uh, the timing and geography is sensitive in effect to create, by this interpretation, uh, to create a connecting bridge between the Hebrew religious world of the Old Testament and how the New Testament of Jesus and Paul was framed in a primarily classical Roman world, according to the Spirit of God, which also fits the missional tone shifting between Old and New Testament here via the pagan Socrates, living to become wise, virtuous enough by his death, for whom it was impossible to know about the God of the Jews yet, and precisely befitting for New Testament's eventual turn to the Gentiles. And I believe this interpretation would carry weight for both Christian church and Jewish traditions. For the Christian church, it further bolstered both the idea and the movements of a missional God, that God had been indeed uh, the God of Gentiles. Through the roots of Western civilization, Paul cemented his writings to the churches, later canonized as scripture to create a Christian worldview. For the Jewish traditions, this thesis forms an even more pristine connection that bridges the body of prophetic materials of the Old Testament with the New Testament under the living God of his people. A spiritual connection in silence void of writings, but proven evidently that God is indeed active, alive, at work, and faithful for one people, the Jews, and then all the others. All the more makes the Jewish people stand out remarkably. He is the God of the Jews and God of all the rest. This thesis will also lend strength to Christian apologetics, essentially crediting the legacy of Socrates and philosophy, thereby education to the Christian spirit of God, which may or may not sit well with some scholars, atheists or otherwise. As in, God is responsible for the uptake of education and civilization as we know it in the Western world. And this is how it happened. Uh, Now, with this thesis, there's a fuller picture of how God was ever involved with the intellectual genesis of the millennium after Christian era, so that uh, science and reason and faith in God don't have to go separate ways. And for all believers to say, yes, God is at the helm of leading civilization of mankind intellectually, uh, before there was PhDs in universities, before there was academy and lyceum or philosophy, There was the Spirit of God prompting someone to seek virtue and wisdom. And all this was the singular moment of how God started it all through a Greek man named Socrates without revealing himself as God yet until the fuller revelation of Jesus who died also at the hands of the rulers among the Greeks. 
Uh, finally, the implication for secular scholarship could be even greater. Uh, you may think this whole time, this notion I've presented here is strictly a Christian and religious enterprise. You are not all wrong in that. It is my suspicion that this could be the opening gambit to challenge the Kantian duality of reason and faith, and that is a very large problem to solve, since Immanuel Kant virtually shredded any connection to be made between reason and faith by 16th century and on. He completely split and divided science and reason apart from religion and faith. As a result, his thought had completely polarized the religious experience far and away from scientific investigation. Uh, due to Kant, in other words, you are either subscribed to believing the world by the reality as you experience it with telescopes and microscopes, again, footnote to Aristotle, or you are a religious fanatic who ascribe everything to mystery, under which you have every branch of agnostics and pantheists. Uh, either or, there was, no thanks to Kant, nothing in between. You are either a science nut, however good you are at investigating the universe, or your religious nut, all the way on the other end of the spectrum, however bad you are at articulating the unknown religiously. Uh, intellectually, this Kantian impact is felt more heavily than ever, in my view, during the 21st century of an incredibly resourceful and technological marvel, and at the same time with a grievously unbearable spiritual stagnation, whatever spiritual means to you in this day and age for the sake of this conversation. These are the times I find myself in. And this dividing line between reason and faith is getting stronger, thicker every decade. Uh, the social and cultural divide between religious and scientific, their animosity and disparity towards each other as social groups is becoming so great to the point where reconciliation seems difficult, not impossible. But when we look back to the top of the river of philosophy, as reminded by the proposition put forward here, the genesis of the entire school of thought philosophy Reason was found by faith. Philosophy was born this way, by faith. Reason was found by faith from a man who could not resist a nameless deity he described as a daemon. In other words, philosophy was born out of a man's spiritual quest, yielding to a supernatural voice. And this particular conversation of this episode is to identify that voice by the religious, namely, Christian ripples around it in the charted waters of history. To bring reason and faith back together may be a much-needed turn of development of the current world stage. Hence, I say, this may be an opening gambit to swing the pendulum back on an entirely different axis in regards to religion and science. Instead of dividing reason from faith, turns out reason was born out of faith. Arguably, a blind faith at that, in the case of Socrates with this daemon, imagine what reason man could produce and arrive at when faith is fully seen and we're not blind at it, as revealed by Jesus. Pure reason was a product of faith. I think Kant may have missed that. Rather than to compartmentalize faith and reason and separate them, turns out it worked really well in the beginning when the two are wedded together practically. Practically, not theoretically, as we would have books or lectures do, but practically, hinted at by the life of Socrates and ultimately the life and the death and resurrection of Jesus. And Jesus would later affirm this in the Gospel of Matthew, saying wisdom, coin philosophy here, wisdom, wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. 
Wisdom is vindicated by deeds, practical performance. A reasonable life is a life lived by faith in God. Pure reason must begin with a pure faith. That's the conclusion I've arrived at by this proposition. Investigating、uh, what happened with Socrates.、Uh, now I'm no Kantian expert here, but I think this is something worth looking at.、Uh, so to break it down, the rationale behind this interpretation that the divine silence of Scripture in the 400 years was no silence at all, the rationale is chronological, biographical, and motivational. Chronology by the timing of it. Biographical about the life and legacy of Socrates compared to Jesus, and motivational in the sense of a supernatural prompting. Now, we're at this end of the episode, and I would like to tell you about my reason for this publication. One of which is biblical, and the other is personal, and I'll tell you both. <laughs>